and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel Moran, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. We will discuss her article, Police Privacy, which will be published in the UC Irving Law Review. So welcome to the program, Rachel. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate you having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I, I was saying to you a moment ago, I mean, I just found the subject matter of this paper absolutely scandalous and <laughs> appalling. And I can't wait to talk to you about it because I think that a lot of people don't realize that this is even happening. Um, so maybe you could start by just saying a little bit about what is police privacy anyway? I mean, what kind of information about police is is private? And if I go to ask for records about the activities um, of the police and disciplinary records and so on, what happens? What do I get, if anything? Yeah, well, it varies so much depending on state, but in a lot of places, you get very little. Um, and that's really what the background behind this paper is um, that in many states, and the paper discusses there's variety among jurisdictions, but in many states, if a member of the public is trying to find information about complaints filed against an officer, allegations, for example, of perhaps excessive force or tampering with evidence or any variety of allegations you might come up with involving a police officer and potential misconduct, um, it, in many states, that's ranges anywhere from impossible or difficult to obtain for a member of the public. And there's a lot of controversy around that. Uh, you know, I appreciate you sharing that you think it's scandalous. Um, there are heated debates nationwide about this very topic. And so that was, that's the uh, context of the paper. Right. So, so I guess it differs from place to place. I guess the obvious assumption would be that in like super conservative places, it's really hard to get police records, but in like real liberal places like California and New York, it's like no problem. They're real <laughs> forthcoming. And what's so funny is that this is a, um, this is really defies political boundaries in many ways. Um, a lot of people would make that exact assumption. In fact, New York and until very recently, California were the two most restrictive states in the nation in protecting or preventing the public from accessing records of police misconduct. A lot of times what you'll find is that it's actually what, uh, what might be referred to as the red states or the more conservative states that have a greater respect for open records. And therefore, because of that, it may not be due to any particular desire to protect the police. But their open record laws in general are much uh, broader and more generous. And so police misconduct records fall within that. And those, it, uh, there are roughly 12 states, depending on exactly how you want to break it down, that do permit uh, a presumption of public access to these records. And it's, it spans the spectrum of uh, more traditionally blue and red states. So, so uh, let me... I, I want to know how this works in practice, right? So, I mean, I lived in New York for a long time. Imagine a situation where I feel like I've been the subject of 
police misconduct. And I want to bring an action against the police officer and against the police department for, for injuring a 1983 action or some kind of civil rights action. Right. And, and I want to find out, you know, who this officer is and if they've done this kind of stuff before, because if they've done it before, then presumably, you know, that's going to strengthen my case that, that they've done something wrong. I go to the police department or I have my lawyer go to the police department. What do I get? You get probably nothing. Um, and just to make the fact scenario clear, you haven't yet filed the civil rights suit. It might be different if you're actually in the context of ongoing civil rights litigation. But if you're trying to figure out whether you've got an officer who you'd have a viable suit against, and in that context, whether the officer has a pattern or a history of, or a practice of engaging in misconduct, um, you're not going to get much of anything if the con- if the state is New York in particular. And that's because of a law. Um, I think it's sort of ironic. It's called Civil Rights Law, uh, Section 50A. It's the subject of extensive dispute uh, litigation. It's been around since the 1970s. But in practice, what that means in nearly, uh, well, the vast majority of New York jurisdictions is that if you try to go to a police department and request uh, the personnel file or the misconduct records of police officer X, you're simply going to be told that that is not available to you. Point blank, end of story. Um, you can't get the records. Wow. Okay. So maybe we could take a step back then for a second and just ask, like, you know, why does this why does this matter? I mean, like, what do people want these records for? What kind of records do they want? Sort of what's the context in which these requests are being made? And, you know, are there new reasons that people want these records or have sort of the the practice around like asking for records or what people want to do with them changed over time? Well, it's certainly become more and more of an issue. I think journalists are more frequently trying to access the records. A lot of the disputes around these records come from um, either civil rights organizations or newspapers or other media organizations who are trying to get access. Um, I lived in Chicago for 10 years and was an attorney there. And uh, so an example very familiar to me is um, the uh, Laquan McDonald shooting, there was an officer named Jason Van Dyke who was recently convicted of murdering a young black teenager, Laquan McDonald. Um, the, Illinois has changed its laws in recent years, but for many years, records of allegations filed against Chicago police officers were not something the public could access. And um, after this shooting, it came to light that Jason Van Dyke had, in fact, 18 prior allegations ranging from use of racial slurs against civilians to excessive force to a variety of other things. Um, And more and more media outlets, since police misconduct, I think, is becoming increasingly part of the national conversation, has been in some way for decades, but I would say probably in the last five years or so, really a significant topic of conversation. A lot of media outlets are trying to obtain information about how police departments are doing in terms of disciplining uh, officers who are receiving complaints. Personally, the way I got interested in this was partially from a litigation standpoint as a public defender, but also once I got into academia and was um, one of the things I was looking at is the ineffectiveness of internal affairs review in police departments and, um, internal affairs departments tend to have just atrocious track records of 
sanctioning or disciplining officers for alleged misconduct. And so then uh, as a spinoff, you start wondering, okay, well, does anyone know this? And can anyone, Mm. does the public have access to uh, data about these kind of poor track records? And then specifically information about officers individually. And a lot of times, I mean, again, there's some variety here, but a lot of times the answer is pretty much no. Wow. So are these limitations going not only to information about particular officers, but even kind of aggregate data as well? They can. In New York, that's one of the topics of uh, discussion right now. But the New York Police Department is refusing to release even anonymized data about uh, officers, just redacted, no identifiable information data about officers and complaints. And that has been, um, and, you know, they got so much flack for that, that then the police department proposed releasing some information and the police union immediately fought back saying that even anonymized data would violate the officer's privacy, which is sort of a, you know, fascinating thing to try to tease out, but that's the stance of the union. Okay, so is this a long-standing thing? I mean, has it always been the case that obtaining records about police officers and police misconduct has been limited or rest- or prohibited in some states and permitted in others? Like, how has this changed over time? Well, um, so the the New York and California laws that I referenced earlier that are some of the most restrictive uh, came about in the seventies and they actually were direct responses to um, previously. So defense attorneys in criminal cases were using, were able to obtain records of police uh, histories of misconduct or allegations. And then were using those to impeach the officers at trial in response, the unions, as they became stronger, uh, fought back, uh, arguing that it unfairly discredited the officers or was a fishing expedition for misconduct. And uh, that's how those laws came to be. So we're tracing back about 40 or not quite 50 years. Um, A lot of states, though, actually don't single out law enforcement specifically for protections. They just have more generic statutes saying that personnel records of public employees are not accessible to the public. And I'm not sure um, how long those date back. They're longstanding, but I couldn't, I did not in my piece try to trace each one back to a particular date. So I don't know if I could speak to that. Mm, mm. And then in recent years, there definitely has been some changes uh, both for and against privacy. I guess I would say some, some States are like California are, um, changing their laws to make these records more accessible to the public. Other states are doubling down, and you've got legislatures on, legislators on either side proposing laws that would increase public access or prohibit. That's interesting. So it's really, it's like a smorgasbord, it almost sounds like, <laughs> yeah. of, of different laws, depending on where you are. Um, and, you know, in your paper, you talk a little bit about how we might think about that. But, 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 but maybe, I mean... Uh, Maybe we need to look at it from the other perspective. I mean, like, what's the rationale for this? I mean, like, from my perspective, I, you tell me these records are 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 private and non-disclosed. This sounds bizarre to me, but but there's got to be a reason. Like, what what reason is given for why these these records shouldn't be released? Sure. Well, so the the proponents of 
police privacy in this context tend to be the unions. And they're powerful. They have a lot of legislative backing in many, I'm generalizing here, but in many states, in many areas, police unions have a lot of money um, and a lot of, you know, sway with legislators. And those tend to be the strongest proponents of privacy. And what they say is, I mean, the, the, the reason I latched onto privacy is because they, at face value, that's just what they say. They say this would violate the officer's privacy to give the public access to the, the kinds of misconduct records that I talk about in the paper. If you dig a little deeper um, into what privacy means, sometimes you don't find anything, but sometimes you find, okay, they're talking about, there's, uh, they're suggesting a risk of retaliation against the officers, potentially even physical harm or employment harm. Somebody might be terminated unfairly because of records that were made accessible to the public. Um, in some states, uh, this, this has come up in Missouri. Um, the fear is that officers will be, if this inf- if information of a past history of misconduct is known, they'll no longer really be viable as witnesses at a trial, um, and that would harm I mean, them, harm their employment I mean, status, et cetera. I mean, good, right? <laughs> that, is, that is certainly the stance of people on the other side is, well, that's inappropriate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the harms okay. they're suggesting, some people would say, are just appropriate remedies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there any is there any evidence presented of officers being targeted or treated unfairly on the basis of the disclosure of this information? I mean, it sounds like it's only, a, you know, a, a percentage of 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 departments that limit access. So do we see like a tidal wave of retaliation and targeting of officers in in states where the information is released? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. That's my next well, one of my next pieces. So I'm doing a modest empirical project trying to get uh, data in the states that the states that do have a presumption of access to these records to try to figure out are they actually being used in a way that creates identifiable harm to the officers? There's really, I mean, my suspicion is no, but there is a uh, huge lack of empirical research Mm -hmm. on this topic. Um, I cannot point you to specific data to say that it is actually harming officers or that it is not. I certainly have my suspicions about this, but I can't point you to data and that's leading my Mm -hmm. next piece. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds fascinating. I look look forward to reading it. I I mean, just on its face, it seems to me that the people who are arguing on limiting access to public records really ought to bear the burden of showing that the parade of horribles from disclosure is actually likely to materialize. I mean, mm-hmm. have the police unions in New York and California produced any evidence to support that argument? Not that I know of. I've not seen in the litigation that I've followed or even in just the news reports, I've not seen identifiable data suggesting that there is harmed officers other than in so, as I mentioned earlier, some there are definitely some instances where officers have, for example, been put on what's called a no-call list by prosecutors. So they will refuse to call officers to testify if there's been um, 
allegations or sustained findings of misconduct against those officers. That's a dispute with in Philadelphia, too, with the uh, DA Larry Krasner there, who's creating some reforms. Um, it's been a dispute in St. Louis with a new reform-minded, uh, more progressive prosecutor. So that is one um Again, I think we could debate whether that's actual harm, but that is one consequence that I could Uh point to in specific places. Other than that, in terms of like a fear of physical harm, that which is often brought up by police unions, I don't want to say that it's never happened because I can't say that, but I'm not aware of any such instances. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like in the case of Krasner and whatnot, I mean, they're quote unquote blacklisting officers. But they're doing because they're liars. I mean, I mean, <laughs> right? Don't we want we don't want liars on the stand, right? I mean, yeah. And I mean, the pushback that someone else would give you is, well, maybe these findings about the officers aren't reliable, though. So maybe uh, mm. to the extent we don't trust the internal affairs or whoever is reviewing these allegations be doing a good job either way, then maybe we have a genuine concern about these findings against the officers being reliable. And I can somewhat, um, I am moderately sympathetic to that concern. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it just seems to me like any witness who has a history of, you know, disciplinary infractions or, you know, falsehoods is you know, the, the credibility of their testimony is going to be impeached. I mean, you know, why should it matter if it's a police officer or a civilian or, you know, someone who's in prison? Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the rules of evidence, there are many ways in which a lay witnesses credibility can be impeached. And um, certainly that's, you know, a concern is that in the context of litigation specifically, we need to be able to have access or defendants need to be able to have access to the same kinds of impeaching material about officers. It's a little bit different if you take it outside the context of litigation, where it's just the public seeking access. Um, but I think the litigation context is the most overt point and yet still situations, a situation where routinely criminal defendants have trouble accessing these records. Yeah, well, in your paper, you, you you suggested it's not just criminal defendants, but in some cases, even prosecutors have trouble accessing these records. Yeah, so that's the situation in California. And um, I keep referencing California having recently changed its laws. What it did is go from a um, late last fall, effective January of this year, um, it now makes certain classes of allegations accessible to the public. There are still a not large number of records that the public cannot access. But the way California was particularly extreme, and in some ways still is, is that uh, the police department couldn't even disclose this information. Well, prosecutors couldn't demand the information. And even when uh, perhaps a police chief or a sheriff's department wanted to, as a matter of getting rid of certain officers or reforming the department, they actually weren't allowed to disclose the information, even to prosecutors who may be calling these people to testify at trial. And that's why California had probably the title of the most draconian law enforcement uh, records policy, and which has now I mean, been just... somewhat reformed and is the subject of massive controversy, the new law. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it just seems so bizarre to me that we would limit the prosecutor's ability 
to do justice to the extent that like we still have faith <laughs> that, that that's a realistic part of the prosecutor's obligation. But I mean, to say to them, we're going to deny information that you would need to evaluate the credibility of your own witness. I mean, that just seems totally bonkers to me. Yeah, it's pretty wild for sure. Um, and there's some, yeah, there's been some good scholarship around that, just specific to California around the how crazy that particular law is. But then there are other states, not quite as extreme, but who basically take the turn a blind eye approach and say that if a prosecutor knows of and has access to the information, they have to turn it over as a matter of Brady material. Um, mm. But if they don't know, they're not required to find <laughs> out. Aha. Uh-huh. And yeah. in those in those situations, can the defense do it independently or do they have to rely on the prosecutor's, uh, quote, discretion in terms of determining whether or not they want to check the credibility of their witness? Well, in those situations, typically what has to happen is that in many states, at least, is that the defendant has to file a motion for a subpoena ducis tecum requesting records. But it's a catch 22 because a lot of these states um the subpoena ducis tecum motion will only be granted if the defendant can make a showing that the records exist and of what they would say, which of course is impossible. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Thank you for the appropriately timed laughter. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. And Gee, that's, that's the reality of that's actually how it works in many States. Oh man. Well, you know, I, I, I gotta say too, like from a, from a broader structural standpoint. Uh, reading your paper, I just couldn't get away from the the irony of police departments and police officers and police unions insisting on, you know, piously insisting on this need for protecting the privacy of the officers. I mean, given how like excessively public information about every other aspect of the criminal justice system is. I mean, like we're publishing people's mugshots and distributing, you know, like videotape of them being arrested and being interrogated and all the documents about them and then putting people on public registries for the rest of their lives. And like, you know, how do we make it easier for people to find out information about members of the public who've been convicted of a crime or even just, you know, charged with a crime. I mean, it just, it's very hard for me to, to sort of see how it makes sense to be super public when it comes to private citizens, but super private when it comes to government agents. Yeah, there's a huge disconnect there. Um, and what, uh, you know, I'll give a shout out to Kate Levine, who's written an article somewhat similar on uh uh, on the notion that what we should really be doing in this situation is seeing how officers are protected and treating other folks in the criminal system the same way, instead of seeing mm. how defendants in the criminal system are exposed and saying police officers should equally have a lack of privacy. Um, it's an mm. interesting take on the situation. What I, you know, what I really wanted to do with this piece is talk about what it actually applies some privacy theory because the debates are so often outcome oriented around this topic. So you can make a great case for why the public should have access to these records. You can make a, uh, I would say more marginal case as to why police officers might be uh, somewhat speculatively, but might be harmed by giving the public access. What people tend not to do is say, um, 
are these records actually the kinds of things that are considered private? Because the word, the privacy word is just bandied about and people say, well, it should be overcome by the public interest or it should be respected. What I wanted to do is say, are these actually even the kinds of records that anyone, that the law considers private? Um, Mm. And so that was the impetus behind taking a deeper dive into privacy theory, which is part of what this piece does. Yeah. So, so what do you think about that? I mean, like if you were to disaggregate the different kinds of records that are really at stake, I mean, what should policymakers, courts, whoever be looking at in evaluating when disclosure is appropriate and kind of policy positive and when there are legitimate privacy concerns that might counsel against disclosure or counsel in favor of redaction or something like that? Like, I mean, what what, what should they be looking to? Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing courts should be asking is what kind of information is in other contexts deemed private? So um, going to the informational privacy body of law in particular, what's interesting is so um, – most courts, the U.S. Supreme Court has never definitively recognized a constitutional right to informational privacy, but they've hinted at it. And what most courts have done in the context of other, uh, so taking it out of the law enforcement context, other kinds of informational records, um, they recognize a right to informational privacy in pretty limited context, actually. And the context makes sense to me. There are things like medical information, sexual history information, mental health, um, Sometimes financial records fall into this category, but usually courts use words like intimate or personal information is the kind of thing that's protected by a right to informational privacy. And in those cases, um, the burden should be on the person seeking access to the records. And it's, it's usually some form of intermediate scrutiny. Not everyone applies the same standard, but there's a somewhat of a burden on, placed on the person seeking access to overcome a presumption of confidentiality confidentiality in these intimate or personal records. Um, Applying that kind of framework to the police misconduct records context, there are a few kinds of misconduct records that may fall into that category, but the vast majority do not. Uh, You know, an allegation that an officer uh, beat someone up during a traffic stop or uh, lied on the witness stand or even, you know, did something much less serious, like showed up late to work, um, which could be deemed a misconduct, you know, that's not intimate and personal information. So I don't mm. I think when courts are looking at this, they should actually be, I mean, my ultimate conclusion in the paper was that many of the kinds of things that are deemed misconduct records just don't fall into the category of, of private information. So the right shouldn't be recognized, um, in which case the public should have access if they can, you know, I I suggest a number of public interests that might be at stake here, but if they can show an interest, then I think they should have access. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting the way you, you use like Nixon v. General Services among other cases Mm -hmm. to sort of make that point. The idea that like, you know, if you're exercising the power of the state in whatever capacity, you know, whether you're the president of the United States or just a police officer, you know, in a local police department, I mean, in both cases, so long as you're exercising the power of the state, that just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that's private to me. Yeah. Um, and the few, there have not been a whole ton of courts that have ruled on this issue, but the most clear-cut instance when something should not be deemed private 
is generally when it's a police in the context of law enforcement, when it's an on duty incident involving um, sustained findings of misconduct. So someone has actually concluded that, yes, the police officer did engage in misconduct and it was on duty. Um, there's really a minimal case at best to be made that that in any way implicates the officer's privacy. You get closer when it is um, off-duty misconduct that still might have some relevance, something that the public might want to know about, or if it's um, like an officer with an alcohol problem, for example, you're getting a little bit closer to medical or mental health information there that could be deemed within the context of records ordinarily deemed private. You've still got the the issue, though, that this is a public um, employee with the power of the state behind it. And so even in that context, I'm not at all sure that the records should be deemed private, but it's at least a closer call there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also talk in the paper about uh, like autonomy privacy and not just mm-hmm. informational privacy. Do you think autonomy privacy and that kind of that that kind of conceptual category of privacy claims has any leverage in this circumstance, or is it just not like with respect to police and police records, or is it just some, the kind of like it, it, it doesn't line up, doesn't really have any kind of bearing on on this kind of material. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I will say that I don't um, give that argument any credence or really time in the paper. Um, I tend to think that autonomy has very little impact, but the autonomy strand of privacy is much more traditionally associated with things like marriage, child rearing, education, procreation, um, things like that. Which is not to say, though, I think, you know, I'm not going to present myself as there are other privacy scholars who have put more thought into that. And I'm sure that someone could come up with an argument that a police officer's um, autonomy, his decision making, et cetera, could be impacted by or implicated, at least, by uh, this issue of whether the public has access to misconduct records. I think it's a stretch, but. I don't want to rule it out entirely. The confidentiality strand is the much clearer strand to me of where informational privacy concerns are implicated. Cool, cool. Well, Rachel, it's been great talking to you. And I was wondering if in closing, you might say a little something about where you see the kind of timeline going forward. I mean, are we seeing more liberalized access to police records? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of pushback from unions. Do you think that Ultimately, we're going to get access in a lot of these places that have been restricting it for, I mean, a surprisingly long time. I think that things are going to shift in New York. There's so much heat and so much litigation around this issue and some really powerful arguments being made that the uh, history of refusing to give public access to these records has allowed for a police department that has um, far too many problematic officers on the force. I think California is really the the beta test here. Um, having so recently changed its laws, even since January 1st, when the new law allowing some access to public uh, public access to some of the records has come into effect, numerous lawsuits have been filed. Uh, police unions have pushed back, have filed lawsuits. Um, some departments are just refusing to release the records. Some departments have even been accused of destroying the records. Um, So 
things, seeing how things shake out in those two states over the next, really, I think two to three years will be extremely informative in how um, the rest of the nation responds. But I can say that there are people doubling down on both sides of this for sure. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Rachel, for coming on the program. I really enjoyed talking to you and I look forward to seeing your next project. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Imagination is the backdrop in the new John Cassavetes film starring Ben Gazzara. It's a story written in the blood of our times. It's about violence. The people who create only to give up everything they love for the respect they have for the establishment. It's an anti-gangster film. See the killing of a Chinese bookie. 